We'll hear argument first this morning, number 001021, Rush Prudential HMO, Inc., versus Deborah C. Moran. Mr. Roberts. Thank you, Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the Court. ERISA preemption cases can be exceedingly complicated, but our submission this morning is straightforward. This Court held in pilot life that ERISA's civil enforcement provisions were the exclusive remedy for improper processing of a claim for benefits under an ERISA-regulated plan. The Illinois Independent External Review Law at issue in this case affords a different remedy for a beneficiary dissatisfied with an HMO's denial of benefits. The Illinois law is therefore preempted. Just last week in Great West Life, this Court began its analysis by noting that it was especially reluctant to tamper with ERISA's enforcement scheme and by quoting prior precedent for the proposition that that enforcement scheme indicated that Congress did not intend to authorize other remedies that it forgot to incorporate expressly. That same language, quoted in Great West Life, was quoted 15 years ago in Pilot Life. ERISA's remedies are exclusive, whether we're talking about additional federal remedies or additional state remedies. Mr. Roberts, could you help me with one part of the facts I'm a little puzzled about? Your, your opponents argue there's a difference between the plan and the HMO, and that, that he claims that, that, you, that what you say would apply to a suit against the plan, but this is a suit against the HMO, and I have been unable to find the plan in the papers. Is the plan in the, in the record? The uh, respondent alleged in the complaint, Joint Appendix page 32 and 38, that the certificate of coverage was the plan, and that is in the record. It is Exhibit A to the complaint. The certificate of coverage, who are the parties to the certificate of coverage? The certificate of coverage is an agreement between the HMO and the employer that extends to particular employees the benefits that are set forth there. And in, in, in your view, I mean, you say are they just hooked by their allegation, or you think it's clear that that is the correct, uh, that is the plan? I think they're first bound by their allegation, but second of all, even if other documents also contribute terms to the plan, certainly the certificate of coverage uh, indicates elements of the plan. There may be other documents that set forth other terms of the plan. See, they say that's an insurance policy that is purchased by the plan, in effect, that's, and that, therefore, there's a distinction between the plan and the insurance policy. And I know you disagree. You say the HMO is not an insurance policy. But is there — explain to me why that's totally wrong. Well, it's totally wrong because the question is not how the state law operates to grant a new remedy to a beneficiary. We think it's irrelevant whether it operates on the insurance policy or whether it operates on the plan. The point is, however it operates, it provides beneficiaries under an ERISA-regulated plan with a new remedy. Um, and that remedy is one that's not granted by Congress in ERISA. And the Court in Pilot Life said only the remedies that are granted are available. Of course, one could also say it's not really a new remedy, it's a new protection, sort of like the — see, the question is whether pilot life controls or the Massachusetts case controls. It's, it's an interesting — whether it's something like an, a, an, a compelled benefit or a compelled protection of some kind right. the insurance company provides. Yeah, and, the, and I think the difference is be, between mandated benefits laws like Massachusetts, uh, those laws provide, as this Court said in Unum, uh, a rule of decision that is to be applied by whoever the decision-maker is in reviewing a denial of benefits. Here, it's not a new rule of decision. It's a new decision-maker. Uh, and that decision-maker 
uh, isn't looking to state law to say, well, they've given you mental health coverage, and so that has to be provided. He's deciding what, whether the denial of benefits was proper or not. And that can only be characterized as a remedy, whether no. it's re- — No, I didn't mean to interrupt. Isn't, isn't, isn't the problem that he's doing two things? The decision that he makes is necessarily going to have its consequence on whether the benefit denial was correct or not. But he's also making a, a medical kind of decision. Uh, is, in fact, this reasonable medical practice? Uh, and so he's not merely in the position which a court is in when a court says, does the evidence show this is reasonable medical practice? He's in the decision of, in effect, making a kind of practice decision which doctors as doctors make. So it's, it's somewhere in between. We don't think that's a correct characterization. There is no element of a treatment uh, uh, component in this decision. The only thing that is at issue on this in independent external review is coverage for a number of reasons. First of all, the treatment had already taken place. There was no question of treatment. But coverage is all that Rush HMO has undertaken to provide. It does not provide health care it doesn't provide. It, it agrees to pay well, for this particular. This particular, I, I'm assuming, in, in answer your, from your answer to Justice Stevens, I'm assuming that in this case it is so. But their their argument is you can have HMOs that have nothing to do with ERISA plans, and you can have ERISA plans that don't employ HMOs to provide welfare benefits, uh, and therefore it's appropriate to think of this as a medical decision or, or as a regulation of, of medical practice uh, in a particular form rather than insurance. So once again, there's the, the, the problem is that the facts do not place this in a, in a, in a clear category. Well, I, with respect, I think the facts do place this in a very clear category because there's no question of treatment at issue. Um, even if the state is purporting to articulate its definition of medical necessity, that's not the question. The question is, is this beneficiary entitled to benefits under this plan? And the judgment about what is medically necessary um, is something that is addressed in the plan. The plan provides the broadest possible discretion to the HMO to interpret the plan terms, including medical well, necessity. Well, what if, what if the state law, uh, in effect, tinkered with how you interpret the plan and, and spelled out that in determining what's medically necessary, the plan will make use of an independent uh, medical consultant? Well, the state law can define medical necessity. Uh, I think that's just like a mandated benefits, and you have and to. And can it this. not say? And furthermore, if there's any dispute, you will use an independent medical consultant. That it cannot do, consistent with Pilot Life, because that is a remedy for a denial of benefits, and Pilot Life indicated. Well, not necessarily. It may be more a, a definition um, in the plan or a provision of the insurance plan itself. And then that, in turn, is enforceable under Section 502. Well, that's I mean, the, that's the argument, yeah, and that, I can understand that that you could view it through that lens, could you not? And, and I think, uh, as Judge Posner pointed out in his dissent, if you do that, then all bets are off. If you say that this is incorporated by state law into your plan, and so when you enforce that remedy, all you're doing is enforcing a term of the plan? Well, is that so surprising in light of the fact that um, 
the ERISA law itself excludes regulations of insurance. The, the law itself took that out of ERISA coverage. Well, now, that was the specific question addressed in Pilot Life. That was the heavy lifting in the Pilot Life opinion was reconciling the exclusivity of the civil remedies and the saving clause. You could look at it one of two ways. If you give the savings clause full force, then the remedies aren't going to be exclusive in a case involving an insurer. If you give the uh, exclusivity of ERISA's remedies full force, then the savings clause is relegated to a lower status. Well, though, we had a case, UNUM versus Ward, and held that any statute that effectively creates a mandatory contract term and regulates only insurance companies is an insurance law under the savings clause. UNUM uh, did not involve a remedy. It said the question under Pilot Life and 502 was, quote, not implicated, because it wasn't a state remedy that they were trying to save under the insurance savings clause. It was a rule of decision. This is not a rule of decision. It's a different decision-maker. And if this type of state law remedy is allowed, then there's nothing left. But Unum but was Mr. a Robertson. ruling. Unum was, was a, a question of uh, how, how late could you file. And the state law said you could file late. The law. Why should that be treated differently? The state is making something timely, giving the uh, beneficiary a chance to collect that the plan itself would not have given? I think that's correct. The line is not, and this is what Unum uh, taught, the line is not between substance and procedure when you're talking about mandated coverage. Um, But that's not the line we're advocating. The line we're advocating is between mandated coverage, what does the term, what, what does the plan have to provide? And Unum said, one thing it has to provide, whatever the coverage is, are the, those coverage for those claims that are filed in a timely manner, or, if not, that did not prejudice the insurer. This is different. This is not a new term of coverage. It's a remedy. If you don't like what the HMO has done with your benefits claim, you get to go to a state law independent external reviewer and get it overturned. But it's and a different kind of remedy than saying, for example, punitive damages. It's... It, it is, it, it, and I thought that's what pilot life was about. The argument is made that this is okay because all you get are the benefits that you're entitled to under the plan. We think that the Taylor decision, decided the same day as pilot life, rejects that argument. It says that, that one of the claims in that case was for the benefits due under the plan, uh, not punitive damages, not uh, emotional distress. The plan benefits. And the Court said that's not only preempted, that's completely preempted. ERISA preempts not only different remedies, but alternative uh, additional remedies. Well, under your theory, there could be no private arbitration agreement by an HMO plan and people covered by the plan. No, I, I think that's certainly an open question. The issue there would be. Well, I don't what, see how it's open under your view. Arbitration, uh, it's the difference between a voluntary agreement between the parties, which is what ERISA seeks to enforce, and uh, something that's compelled by state law. The, the analogy that the Solicitor General draws to the collective bargaining. But under your rationale, 502 controls. It's a remedy. So how could a private agreement to arbitrate survive under your theory? Well, it would survive because it would be regarded as an internal plan procedure, not — Wouldn't it also conflict 
wouldn't it also conflict with the statutory provision? No, no. I mean, the, the uh, ERISA allows internal uh, remedies, appeals within the plan. And, again, it's an open question, but we don't dispute that the, the arbitration would be allowed. The problem with the analogy to the arbitration cases is that the Solicitor General stops too early. Yes, you can have voluntary arbitration, even where remedies are preempted. But surely a state law that directed that parties to a collective bargaining agreement must arbitrate, and here's how they must arbitrate, would be preempted by the Labor Management Relations Act. If you pull, pursue the analogy to a situation that's comparable to this case, the conclusion that there is preemption seems to follow uh, inexorably. And the idea that everything is all right because at the end of the day you have to enforce this in a Section 502 action uh, really makes a hollow shell out of pilot life. You have to sometimes enforce arbitration in court, but we still think of arbitration as a different remedy. We don't say that's a judicial remedy because it has to be enforced. Yes, but there's another difference with pilot life, and that the only question is whether it related to the insurance. Here you have, you admit it's related, but then you get on to the second ball game of whether it's a change in the insurance coverage. And one can look at this, I think, and I, just need, I want you to comment on this, as not changing a term of the plan but rather changing a term of the insurance policy purchased by the plan. And, and we actually go on to the, the third game, which is uh, uh, if it conflicts with the substantive term of ERISA, and this is what Pilot Life held, it is, it is preempted. Uh, and this conflicts with the exclusivity of, of the remedies. We don't believe, when you go through the usual insurance savings clause factors, that this is the regulation of insurance. But what Pilot Life held and this was the important part of the decision, which was unanimous, is that when you look at the savings clause, you have to be informed by an understanding of what Congress was trying to do with the exclusive remedies. That the most important, quote, most important consideration in deciding whether that remedy in that case is covered by the savings clause was that Congress said that all the remedies were exclusive. If you allow them back in through this back door of the savings clause, then that, re- that exclusivity is going to be completely undermined. That, that's the dis- issue that's here before that, the Court. That is, I'd like you to expand just a little, because I'm, I'm actually trying to work out what's the framework within which we think of this. And I had thought that that part of pilot life was really uh, part of the reason for interpreting the savings clause as it was there interpreted, uh, that normally what you do is ask the first question, is this preempted in the first place? And it is if there's field preemption, if there's conflict preemption, and maybe with ERISA if there's something more. And ordinarily, if there is such a conflict, the federal side wins. But the whole point of the savings clause to say, if there's a conflict in respect to insurance, the state wins. Stop right there. But then maybe... Pilot Life adds something else which says that it couldn't just say, if there's a conflict that brought you into preemption in the first place, well, the federal government wins, because that would be to eviscerate the meaning of the savings clause. Now, that's the framework in my mind, and I'd appreciate anything you could help with that. And again, that poses sort of the conflict between what the Court and Pilot Life said were the exclusive remedies and the savings clause. That's not a new issue. That is what this Court unanimously decided 15 years ago in pilot life when it said 
when we look at the savings clause, the most important thing, most important thing, is to keep in mind the remedies are supposed to be exclusive, so that if this is a remedy, it is a regulation of ERISA. It is not the regulation of insurance. And the Court reaffirmed that approach in the John Hancock's John, Jan, Jan, John Hancock case, where it said, and I'll just quote one sentence, no decision of this Court has applied the savings clause to supersede a provision in ERISA itself. If you apply the savings clause to allow this state law remedy to be applied, that would be superseding what this Court said Section 502 of ERISA meant in pilot life, which was that these remedies are exclusive. That question was addressed. That was, and I'll say it again, that was the hard part of the opinion in pilot life. And that was reaffirmed in John Hancock. I see that. Then uh, I'd think what you're saying, I take it, is at least where the conflict is particularly severe, uh, it's perhaps not the state doesn't necessarily win, and you think this is a particularly bad one. Well, I, I do think it's particularly bad, but I don't think it has to be. I think if, it sta- if the state law stands as an obstacle to the accomplishment of the federal objectives, it is preempted. The federal objective requires exclusivity with respect to remedies. This obviously stands as an obstacle to that objective, and so is preempted. Now, they say, well, it's saved because the last stop in this state law remedy is a quick dash into federal court to get a stamp that says enforce. The state law says if the reviewer says you've got to provide this, the HMO has to provide it. And they say, well, that's okay because we run into federal court. We make this a 502 action. Well, that makes pilot life ridiculous because it says every type of remedy is okay so long as the last stop is a, is a quick visit to the federal courthouse. It also raises very serious Article Three concerns because federal courts are not supposed to be looking at decisions made, by, made under state law that they have no authority to review and simply rubber stamping them. And it gives rise to the bizarre result that the respondents and the Solicitor General support in this case, that an action to enforce Section 410 is completely preempted so that there's jurisdiction. But then it turns out Section 410 is not preempted at all. That's a very curious result, but they have to maintain. What is Section 410, Mr. Rubin? 410 is the state law of the, uh, the Illinois HMO Act. Um, uh, I've been referring to it as the Independent External Review Law. Um, uh, but they have to maintain that facade. Would you state the, uh, um, the absurd positions again? I'm <laughs> they didn't, didn't strike me as that absurd. But, yeah. what, what is absurd is that they have to maintain that this can only be enforced under a 502 action, uh, that the state law claim — keep in mind this began, of course, as a state law claim in state court. 502 wasn't mentioned at all. It was recharacterized as a 502 action. They said because it's completely preempted. Um, but the underlying remedy that's being enforced isn't preempted at all. Now, those are two different questions, jurisdiction and substance. But it does seem odd that if you're going in and all you're doing is getting a rubber stamp uh, from the federal courthouse saying in the enforced, that that's completely preempted when the law isn't preempted at all. Well, but it's not absurd in their view anyway, because they're saying they have a human being over here called an arbitrator. And this human being tells you what the benefit is. And what your clients are really objecting to, frankly, is not this remedy. They couldn't care less. What they're worried about is that that human being called the arbitrator is going to say that this woman has to have a certain treatment that otherwise, in their view, she wouldn't have to have. I mean, just imagine the statute that said, instead of what it says, 
that uh, you have to provide medical treatment whenever there's a 25 percent chance of improvement. No arbitrator at all in that one. And they'll be even more excited. And indeed, it, it, it doesn't take away the, the federal remedy in, the, in my hypothetical, nor does it in this one. It just turns out that we know who's going to win. Well, that's because there's a different decision-maker making the decision on your claim for the denial of benefits. And that's what makes it clear that what's involved is a different remedy. It's also a remedy that changes dramatically what the plan actually provides. And it does that by taking away from the plan fiduciary the deference that the fiduciary Is that fiduciary a definition of his powers of review and so forth in the record anywhere? I'm sorry. The, the, you, you, you've uh, two or three times referred to the fact the plan gives the fiduciary this uh, re, uh, standard of review. Is that in the record? No. The, the, uh, the only elements of the plan that are in the record is the certificate of coverage. So for, for all we know, the plan might actually say whatever Illinois law requires the decision-maker to do shall be done. Well, that's what the law provides. But, I mean, maybe the plan says that, too, for all I know. No, because the the, the — Elements of the plan that are in the record, the certificate of coverage, notes that the HMO has the broadest possible discretion to interpret the terms of the plan in deciding coverage. And under this Court's decision in Firestone — It says that in the certificate. Yes. Uh, and and uh, pages 7 and pages 8. Uh, it's Exhibit A to the complaint. And under this Court's decision in Firestone, that means that that decision is subject to a deferential review. The State law changes that. And the state law gives the decision to the, de- to the independent external reviewer who makes his decision, apparently de novo, uh, so that the precise thing that the plan participants, parties, contracted against, the recognition that this medical necessity is a question of judgment, some people are going to view it differently, we want to make clear that it's our discretion that controls, and that gives us entitlement to deferential review. Mr. Roberts, there are some close to 40 states have laws like this? Yes. And there's legislation introduced, at least, in Congress to accomplish what? Um, my understanding of many of the pending bills is that they have an external review provision. But, of course, it's a federal one. And that is consistent with ERISA's goal of uniformity in claims processing and administration. The Do you know anything about the status of that pending legislation? You know, no, other than at various times uh, — passage is imminent and then, and then it uh, falls apart. Uh, but, uh, again, it's a very different thing to say this is the uniform federal remedy and, this, and to have, as Your Honor points out at present, 40 different remedies. If you're running a company that has a health care plan uh, with operations in different states, the uh, health plan can't be uniformly Are most of the uh, state law provisions similar to the one in Illinois? They all have differences. For example, in some states, the independent external reviewer is an administrative board. In Michigan, it consists of seven people in certain cases. In some places, it's, it's not just one person. It's more than one person. Some places, it consists of uh, employee representatives as well as, as well as physicians. But it does change what the parties contracted for. And the why, is that, why is that a more disturbing change than changes in what is the minimum required coverage? Well, I don't know that it's more disturbing. It's different. Yes, the impact on an HMO can be greater if the state law says you must provide mental health coverage, this, this, and this. 
But then at least the employer looking at it knows what's at stake, and he knows that the remedy is going to be the remedy that is provided under Federal law, which is that they're going to enforce what I have agreed to provide under this plan, even if what I've agreed to provide is compelled uh, by State law. You know that you're not going to face all sorts of different remedies. And in particular here, if you contract for the broadest possible discretion, you know that when the review is undertaken, your fiduciary decision will be reviewed with appropriate deference. That is taken away here. It's taken away by giving the independent external reviewer the authority to make a de novo decision. So that what is set up are two very different remedial regimes, the Federal regime. The fiduciary makes a decision with the broadest possible discretion. His obligation is to be faithful to the terms of the plan. That is reviewed in federal courts. It's not the fiduciary's decision, as I understand it. It's the insurance policy's decision. Or someone decision. to whom that dis- discretion has been delegated under ERISA. And there's yeah. a provision in ERISA that allows them to say, this is the, the uh, uh, entity that is going to make the final decision. Under 503, that, that is a fiduciary decision. Uh, the final denial or grant of, of benefits. That's the federal re- remedy. The state remedy is the independent external reviewer makes his or her decision, and that decision is binding and final. Those are two very different remedies. ERISA's remedies are supposed to be exclusive, and the decision below undermining that exclusivity should be reversed. Mr. Ross, before you sit down, would you just give me a, a moment of your views on whether or not it's appropriate to regard the HMO as an insurance company? The HMO is properly regarded as an insurance company when it is engaged in the business of insurance. Just because it's an insurance company doesn't mean that all of its activities, including claims processing, for example, are necessarily the business of insurance. Very well, Mr. Roberts. Mr. Albers, we'll hear from you. Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the Court. The Illinois law, Section 410, is an insurance law that does not conflict with ERISA, Section 502, or this Court's decision in Pilot Life, and therefore it is enforceable to protect the interests of Illinois insureds like Deborah Moran. Does the Illinois law provide for a review in Illinois state courts? The Illinois law does not provide one way or the other. Section 4-10 does not say that. This case was reviewed uh, and was enforced by the Seventh Circuit as a 502 action. But it, well, the action was originally brought in state court, was it not? I originally brought the action to state court to enforce the independent review because the insurer was refusing to provide any independent review at all. And the two parts of the statute, the requirement that there be medical necessity to review, and then the actual enforcement of the decision were parsed at the district court level and in the Seventh Circuit. Judge Conlon initially remanded the case after it was removed, finding that the medical necessity portion of the statute did not offend pilot life or Section 502. Back in state court, Judge Kinnaird in Chancery found that medical necessity did, did not offend 502 and ordered a medical necessity review. The medical necessity review determined that the procedure was medically necessary. It was then, I then sought a payment of the benefit, and that was removed to federal court and Judge Cowan found that was a 502 action. If the Seventh Circuit view is, up, is upheld by this Court, in the future, uh, would actions lie in state court to re- re- uh, enforce this or just under 502? I think in, consistent with the Court's ruling in, in pilot life, it would be a 502 action to seek benefits. I think there's a different question with respect to whether it's just the enforcement of that portion of the statute which requires medical necessity. I don't think that then you're seeking the benefit. 
And I, I submit that it was perfectly appropriate to send this case back to state court for that determination and that ruling. But ultimately, to, to get the benefit, I would, I would suggest that that would have to come under 502 under the Court's reasoning in Pilot Life. This case does not conflict with, with Pilot Life, as Petitioner suggests, um, in, in addressing the conflict issue which has been raised, which I think is central to the decision that the Court needs to make. Uh, I think the Court should consider the, the burdens that Petitioner must meet to show that conflict. Uh, it, pre, ERISA preemption could, is could a defense. Could the State provide for liquidated damages, do you think? I mean, damages under, under the benefit under itself? Under the insurance uh, regulation exception? You mean other than the benefit itself, Your Honor? I would submit under your — the Court's ruling, which you wrote in, in Pilot Life, that it would probably be inappropriate to go beyond specific damages that are permitted in ERISA, which is the recovery of the benefit, and I think then under the statute you're permitted to, to recover interest and attorney's fees. And that is all Deborah Moran has ever sought in this case, was the benefit that she was entitled to under the Illinois statute for what was determined to be a medically necessary procedure, which, which also saved her right arm. How That's true, but, but the, the, the question is who is, uh, who is to uh, decide whether she has gotten what she was supposed to get. And uh, what the claim here is that uh, that was supposed to be decided pursuant to one system of, uh, of review, and uh, the state has substituted a totally different one. And under 514B, the savings clause, the state has the right to do that. That does not offend ERISA in any way. Section 503. Isn't that what pilot life was all about? Pilot life did, did not talk about who the decision maker would be. Pilot life talked about the, the enforcement of the benefit had to be in federal court under 502. Pilot life was a state common law cause of action, which was not an insurance law, in bad faith and in contract, which sought compensatory and punitive damages beyond the benefit. And the court said, you can't do that because that offends 502. And, by the way, all I see. So you, you think that all it meant was, uh, was the, you know, the last, uh, the last shot has to be in federal court. And I, think I, I assume the state could provide that uh, all of these uh, contract claims would be first reviewed in state court, so long as it further provides that uh, the ultimate judgment of the state court would only be enforceable by suit in federal court. Would that be okay? I think that's a uh, — if the state law provided for a judicial review in state court, I think that would offend 502. The state law does not provide for that. Arbitration is not is not another another means of of review. I mean, I no, I don't think arbitration don't think is change the remedy. If no. you say your your remedy is not uh, is not a lawsuit but arbitration, I, I mean, the, the I, remedy I find that a, a startling proposition. Sure, arbitration has to be enforced in court, but I've always thought that that's a separate remedy. You ask, what's your remedy? Yeah. Is it a lawsuit or arbitration? Yeah. And this gets down to the issue of what a remedy is. And I looked up a remedy in Black's Law Dictionary, and it has two elements. It has the process, some courts have found, and it also has the result of the process, the enforcement. And I think in pilot life, this court was talking about the enforcement, not the, the means of reaching it. Hey, consistent with that, in a shorthand kind of way, we have referred to this as, as an arbitration or as an arbitrator's decision. Is the, is the independent reviewer acting really as, as, a, as an arbitrator in the classic sense? 
I am assuming that an arbitrator in the classic sense uh, listens to evidence and arguments and decides which of those evidence and arguments uh, is, is the better according to some legal standard. I have assumed, in contrast, that what the independent reviewer here is doing is not only listening to other people, but making a medical judgment himself as a physician. Uh, if, if the latter is true, then it doesn't seem to me that it is a classic example of arbitration. But I may be wrong on that, and I don't want to lead you in the direction uh, of, of, a, of an analysis that ultimately will not pan out. Am, am I right in distinguishing true arbitration from this, or should we regard this as true arbitration uh, imposed by state law? I think this is not — I think you're right. And I think this is not true arbitration as imposed by state law. I think the, the Court found in Pegram that medical necessity decisions contain both elements of, of uh, coverage determination and elements of a medical what well, if, they did. What if, may I just ask one? They, they did in that case. Uh, but my, my concern is, is that true here? In other words, what can you tell me about the terms under which the reviewer acts that says this is, uh, and in, in part at least, or ultimately an independent decision by the reviewer about medical necessity as opposed to an adjudication of which side has the better claim, which an arbitrator might make? The statute itself, 410, requires an independent review by a physician in the relevant specialty. The statute doesn't provide any further guidance with respect to how that review is going to be done. In this case, it was done de novo. It was done by supplying the relevant definition of medical necessity to the reviewer from the insurance contract certificate and providing all the relevant medical records. What does it matter under Illinois, under this Illinois law? Uh, whether there's an adequate treatment that's less expensive? No. It's, it's de novo review by the independent reviewer. And there's no element in it of determining whether there's a slightly less effective remedy but with fewer risks and less costly? That's irrelevant? The statute doesn't address that. I think that if that was part of the definition of medical necessity, that was in the insurance contract document, that would be relevant to the, to the reviewer's decision. It could decision. be in the insurance contract, those, those provisions. It wouldn't conflict with Illinois law. If it Illinois law does not define medical necessity. And so for our analysis, we've assumed the only place that the reviewer could go would be to the plan documents. And the plan document here is there is no plan document, but the relevant portion of the plan document is the insurance contract, which defines medical necessity. And that's what the reviewer used. And that, that's my understanding of what And how did you define it? What was the definition? There were a variety of, of factors to consider. What, what are the available treatments? Are they accepted generally in the medical practice? What are the part, risks? I mean, the word necessity sounds like it means you have to have this. And if you would had something that would be equally effective and less expensive, then it wouldn't be a medical necessity. Is this, is this a, the general understanding of what necessity is or — you, you seem to be saying earlier that it was something different. I'm not sure I understand I that part, that Your Honor. I'm trying you were asked whether, su suppose, I think Justice O'Connor asked you, suppose there was an effective treatment that was less expensive. Mm -hmm. Would this particular treatment still be a medical necessity? And I thought you answered yes to that question. I think that's an, up to the judgment of the 
independent reviewing physician. He certainly can take into account whether there is an equally efficacious treatment available that's less expensive and then reach his judgment as to which one he or she believes is medically necessary in that circumstance. Could I come back to your, your, your colloquy with uh, Justice Souter? Uh, the conclusion that you drew is, is that this is not really arbitration because it's a, it's a doctor. What, what would it take to make it a, a, a remedy of arbitration? Why isn't it arbitration? Suppose a lawyer, suppose the Illinois law read just the way it reads now, except that it wouldn't be a medical doctor who passes on this, but rather a lawyer who would hear medical testimony from both sides. Would that, putting a, a, a lawyer in, in, in the shoes, convert it to arbitration? Uh, my understanding of what Justice Souter asked me was that it have the traditional elements of what we consider an arbitration, which is you, you review the evidence from both sides, they have an opportunity to, to argue, and then you make a decision. And that's what I meant when I said it's not classic arbitration. It is like arbitration in that you give it to a neutral third party who then makes their, their re- there, review. There are no, uh, no submissions to the, uh, to the uh, doctor in this situation? The, the Illinois law does not provide, and, and actually what, for the specifics of that, what it does say is that the HMO must set up the independent review mechanism. And there is no authority in Illinois on what that must contain or, or, or not what, contain. What does it contain? I, I f- would find it... Um, Surprising if both sides didn't uh, press upon the doctor their their view of the of, of the case. You mean he just sort of walks in blind and? Uh, and uh, it, it, all I can tell you is what happened in this case, Your Honor. In this case, the HMO submitted a series of questions to the doctor. One of which was, and it included a lot of the elements that Justice Ginsburg asked about and Justice Souter asked about with respect to what are the available treatments, are there less expensive treatments, uh-huh. what are the risks, and so on. And then he was given all of the relevant medical records and given the definition of medical necessity. And he made a determination that this particular surgery was medically necessary. And what about your client? You, did you put any questions to, uh, to the doctor? We did not, because they had covered all the questions we thought were relevant. But you, you could have, if you wanted to know how the system works in Illinois. I mean, I'm also quite surprised that in the Illinois system, which has been running from some time, the patient wouldn't have an opportunity to say to the arbitrator, this is my side of it. Well, and I would be equally surprised if the uh, doctors who think the other way don't have an opportunity to tell the arbitrator uh, what their position is. There is Maybe I'm always surprised in a lot of things. <laughs> so tell me I should be surprised. But, that's, that's but may I go back to What is the answer, though? What is the answer? You not, are you not familiar with the system in Illinois? Uh, Your Honor, I'm probably as familiar as any lawyer Fine. in Illinois. You're as familiar as anyone, and it's a long-going system. And, and this I is the only case. That's this is the only case Illinois has ever had? This is the only <laughs> law, legal case that's ever been brought under the no. medical is this the only statute? case in which the arbitration system has ever worked in Illinois? Uh, I have no data on that, and the state doesn't keep data on that. I did ask. Do you accept that this is an arbitration system, then? Do I understand that in your response to these questions? You think it is an arbitration system? I think it is an arbitration, and then it goes to a neutral third party. Well, I, I would be amazed if people, I mean, am I right to be amazed that you have a system where people can't make arguments, or can't I, present their point of view to the arbitrator? Uh, I've never come across such a thing. And I take it you're There is nothing in the law that pre- precludes either one of the parties from providing that information. a different question, which is, the uh, thing that I very much appreciate before your time expires, if you could just address uh, for at least a minute or so what I think is a difficult aspect of the case. Why is this insurance? That is, what I'm thinking is that, after all, every company that sells a product with a warranty 
is to that extent an insurer. Every credit card that says you can return defective merchandise is to that extent an insurer. Every manufacturer, even without a warranty, who accepts a product back because it's defective is an insurer. Yet Congress couldn't have meant in this savings clause to allow states to win conflicts that broadly. So why does this fall within the kind of insurer that must fall within this savings clause? I think the Court in Pegram, and it wasn't the issue before the Court in Pegram, but said that HMOs act like insurers and transfer risk like insurers, and the Illinois statute defines an HMO as an entity that bears risk. That's why I gave my example, because I wanted you to see that virtually every manufacturer of the United States is an insurer in that sense. And so is this the kind of thing that Illinois has traditionally regulated? Is it the kind of thing that other insurance commissioners have tended, tended to regulate? What makes this an insurer different from General Motors? Yes, yes to both those questions. The HMO Insurance Act is part of the Illinois Insurance Code, and I think that the insurance law meets all the factors the Court has set forth in its prior decisions with respect to what constitutes an insurer. What, what about a law firm that, that, that handles all of, all of the client's legal business, just as an HMO handles all of the client's medical business, for a flat fee? And there are firms that do this, especially in the labor field. Uh, many, many unions just hire a firm to handle all of the, uh, all of the uh, uh, union members' uh, legal business uh, for the whole year. Is, is that a law firm uh, like this HMO and insurer? I don't think so. That's, it's not what's, a, what's the difference? One, one they're not providing legal insurer. services and, and they don't know how much it's going to come to for the year, and the other one is providing medical services and they don't know how much it's going to come to for the year. Laws regulating them would not be directed to them as acting as insurers. They're not traditional insurers. They don't meet the common-sense definition of what an insurer is. I don't think is. an HMO does either. I, I, this law is limited to the insurance industry. It's limited to HMOs when they bear risk. It does transfer risk by the very operation of the statute. The Seventh Circuit and the Fifth Circuit agree that this is a st- statute which regulates insurance. And under this Court's precedence, set forth in Unum, the Court doesn't ordinarily d- disturb that determination of state law. So I, would s- I respectfully submit that it, that it is an insurance company for purposes of what regulates insurance under 514B. Well, I, I think the question of what's insurance under ERISA is, is a federal question, not a state. Yes, for purposes of 514B, but we look at those factors, and one relevant factor is whether, it, whether the state considers it to be an insurer or whether it regulates it as an insurer, and in both situations it does here. Um, in conclusion, I would suggest, in response to Justice Souter's question to Petitioner, that this case falls squarely between the Court's two precedents in Massachusetts, uh, Metropolitan Life Massachusetts and Unum. It contains a procedural element of medical necessity, which is the relevant rule of decision, just as the Unum case determined that the notice prejudice rule was a relevant rule of decision. And it contains a substantive element, which is a mandated benefit term. Once the medical necessity determination is made, that is a mandated benefit. And I submit to accept Petitioner's argument this Court would have to reverse its decisions in Unum in Metropolitan and in FMC. The effect, I think, uh, Justice O'Connor raised this issue, what would be the effect of such a ruling on voluntary agreements? And, and I agree with the proposition that if there's a conflict between independent review 
And 502, then, the parties couldn't even agree to provide independent review, which would change the practice across the country because it is being provided by self-insured plans and by HMOs. Under 514B, I submit that this is a state insurance law, and the Court should look to harmonize and give effect to that law and affirm that states can regulate insurance and can regulate insurers' medical necessity decisions by leaving those medical decisions to doctors who should be making them. There's no other question. I just ask on the question whether it's an insurance company. Does the state insurance agency regulate the term? You, you in effect, would say that the contract between the employer, the sort of unnamed employer everybody talks about, and the uh, HMO is an insurance policy. Yes. Does the uh, Illinois Insurance Commissioner regulate the terms of that policy in any respect other than this 510, this 410C provision? Yes, they regulate it. There's an entire uh, statute which regulates terms, and there are, for example, me- minimum benefit requirements for breast cancer treatment, for mental health coverage. There are, there are requirements for minimum funding, um, for reserves, and so on. So there's all this traditional. The policy that this, this uh, HMO issued to this employer, same, uh, uh, same form policy it gives to many other uh, uh, purchasers of HMO services, from it. I can only assume it is. I have no evidence on that, Your Honor. Okay. Thank you. Very well, Mr. Albers. Uh, Mr. Needler, we'll hear from you. Mr. Chief Justice, and may, may it please the Court. The claim is made here that uh, the Section 410 of the Illinois HMO Act conflicts with Section 502A. And cons- considering that claim, it's important to focus on the language of exactly what 502A addresses. And it is sit- set out at page 2 of the petition. 502A is empowered persons of the petition, yes. Uh, it's, it's entitled Persons Empowered to Bring a Civil Action. And then it itemizes, it, it, it then continues, a civil action may be brought by various persons. And then it goes on to describe the judicial relief that may be granted or awarded in a suit under Section 502A. In other words, the preemptive scope of Section 502A has to do with causes of action, civil suits in court, and the judicial relief that may be awarded in court. And that is precisely the formulation that the Court used in Pilot Life itself. At the conclusion of the Court's opinion in Pilot Life, the the Court said, uh, in distinguishing Metropolitan Life, the Court said, the Court in Metropolitan Life had no occasion to consider the question presented in this case, whether Congress might clearly express, through 502A, an intention that federal, the federal remedy provided by that provision displace state causes of action. And that's what the question was about in UNAM. Here, Section 4, excuse me, in Pilot Life, here, Section 410 of the Illinois HMO statute does not provide a state cause of action in court, and it does not provide any remedy or relief beyond what's available under the plan itself. Well, you could look at it that way, or you could look at it that it provides, the state law provides a cause of action before this arbitrator. I don't think that's so the you, way it, you, you, you have a, a claim before the arbitrator that you haven't gotten what is medically necessary, and the, the arbitrator shall resolve that cause of action just as under ERISA, uh, the court would, would have resolved what, what the uh, contract said. I don't think that's the ordinary understanding of what a cause of action is. A cause of action is ordinarily regarded as something that you would enforce directly in court. So the only remedies that, uh, that, that you can't displace ERISA with are 
judicial remedies. You, you can provide for any other kind of, uh, of well, relief. I, my point is that's what, that's what Section 502A addresses, and the, and the analysis in, in Pilot Life was what does 502A displace. And it's another important feature of Pilot Life is the Court went through the various remedies that Section 502A uh, provides and, and tellingly discussed this Court's decision in Russell, in which the Court held that da- punitive damages were not a, uh, available in a suit against a fiduciary based on, a, on claims processing. And the Court said it was not going to uh, allow a State cause of action to displace Congress's judgment about what damage remedies to allow and not to allow. Well, m- Mr. Needler, supposing that the State provided for a very elaborate arbitration procedure, you know, with right to counsel, uh, specified the way the hearing should be conducted and so forth, but uh, didn't, didn't say what would happen. It just said the view of the arbitrator would, would be final. Uh, that, that would not be preempted in your view by 502 because it doesn't contemplate judicial enforcement? Uh, Yes, and, and if it also did not provide for relief beyond that, that was available in the plan itself. Well, supposing that uh, after that you, you, you could just simply bring an action under 502. Uh, I, I, I think that would not be preempted. In fact, most states, in this case, uh, Illinois has not tightly regulated the, the form in which the independent review will occur, and that's consistent with the fact that these are highly uh, uh, judgmental uh, medical judgments that, that medical professionals uh, are looking at. That, that, that may be, but I, I want to go back to the Chief Justice's question for a minute. Just assume the absurd example in which the State provided that there are going to be uh, sort of ten steps of arbitration and review between the initial denial by the planned fiduciary and the right to sue, so that someone would be tied up for months or years before the person could get into court. In each instance, I'm assuming that it would not be uh, a provision by the state of a cause of action in the sense that you have been using it. Uh, And yet, wouldn't you concede in that case that the state scheme was keeping people out of federal court for enforcement so long that it would, in fact, be in conflict and would be preempted? I I think the the analysis there would be one of exhaustion of remedies under the plan, including those uh, If the exhaustion was exhausting, wouldn't you say yes, that it, the it could be it could be it could be excused and the Department of Labor's regulations and they've and they oh, but there would be a preemption. In there would case. be a preemption, but the Department of Labor has addressed that under its claims processing regulations. Section five oh three provides for uh, fair um, administrative processing of claims. And okay, but doesn't doesn't that mean then that, that, that your answers to the several questions on this should be it ultimately is a question of degree. This requirement of one step in a review process doesn't reach the point, in effect, of excluding the federal remedy. Right. It does not stand as it does not stand as an obstacle. Another another point that the court stressed in Pilot Life was that uh, that Congress struck a balance between the prompt and fair processing of claims and suits in court. Well, but. Arbitration and independent review measures adopted by state insurance laws of this sort are precisely designed to facilitate the prompt and fair ex, um, and expeditious processing of claims without having to go to court. Mr. So Needler, doesn't it give you a very different remedy? I mean, to, to say that it isn't just a matter of delay, that isn't the problem here. The problem here is that under the plan, the plan manager's determination 
was to be given deference by the federal court in deciding whether the, the plan had been complied with. Whereas under the scheme set up by the state, his determination is not to be given deference. It's this third party who's been brought in who will, who will have the last word, and unless that's arbitrary, the court will enforce what he says. How, how can that possibly be regarded as the same remedy that, that ERISA provided? Nothing in Section 502, and this Court made this clear in Firestone, specifies the standard of review. The Court, therefore, looked to background principles of law there in trust law. The Court here might look to background principles of arbitration law and also to the terms of the plan. Uh, state law, as Justice O'Connor pointed out, might well be able to say that that sort of provision for deference to the plan administrator's interpretation of the plan should not be given. That would be a classic regulation of state insurance law. I wanted to mention one other point about the characterization of pilot life, and that is this Court's decision in Unum. The Court there said whatever the merits of Unum's view of Section 502A's preemptive force, the issue is not implicated here The Court then went on to say why. Because Ward sued under 502A1B itself to recover the benefits. It was not a displacement of the Federal remedy. It was an invocation of the Federal remedy to recover benefits. And the Court said in that cause of action, the notice prejudice rule of California insurance law supplied the rule of decision. So, too, here in the cause of action under Section 502A1B, the uh, State Illinois HMO law supplies the rule of decision, a procedure for an independent reviewer to give a quick, prompt review of the claim, and that independent reviewer's decision is then uh, supplies the rule of decision that the HMO must comply with, and that is then subject to review in federal court. The, the claimant's right to go to court is not frustrated. He can seek review of the arbitrator's decision, or, as we point out in our brief, he can bypass this procedure altogether and can go directly to court. And so 502A1B confers rights on claimants, not on plans. Nothing in the HMO Act stands as an obstacle to the claimant's ability to go directly to court. Another important point about UNAM is the Court made clear that the processing of claims under an insurance policy is an integral part of that insurance policy. But at the same time, states may regulate the process by which claims are adjudicated, and that is precisely what uh, the state has done in this case. It has pr- provided a familiar mechanism. Forty states now have provided for the ex- this external sort of review, and it is common in insurance and medical practice to provide for second opinions by physicians. So what has been provided here is uh, a very familiar sort of uh, approach. One other point about Section 502, it's patterned after Section 301 of the LMRA, and arbitration preceding judicial review is a very familiar aspect of judicial review under Section 301. Section 301 itself does not provide for any particular standard of review. You can have de novo breach of contract suits, as in the Bowen versus Postal Service case we mentioned in our brief, or highly deferential standards of review where the uh, particular issue has been committed to an arbitral process. 502 has the same flexibility. It, it can have a direct de novo cause of action, as the Court contemplated in Firestone, or where the parties uh, underlying agreement or contract <coughs> provides for uh, a, defer- a, a, a separate resolution process. There's deference to that process under Section 502. Uh, Mr. Roberts, you have four minutes remaining. Thank you, Mr. Chief Justice. 
My friend, Mr. Needler, again drew the analogy to the Labor Management Relations Act, and we are on common ground. That's a good analogy. He again stopped one step short. A state law that compelled the parties to a collective bargaining agreement to resolve their disputes in a particular manner, even arbitration, would surely be preempted under the Labor Management Relations Act. And to the extent this remedy is similar to arbitration, that same conclusion applies. We heard that there's no interference with 502 because beneficiaries have the option. They can use the federal remedy or they can use the state remedy. The existence of an alternative remedy is, in fact, an interference with Section 502. And that test, is it optional with the beneficiary, is peculiarly inappropriate when you're talking about preemption. Preemption often is the result of a quid pro quo. We're going to give, say, employees a federal remedy, but for the employers, we're going to make it exclusive. To say that additional remedies are okay so long as the employee can still resort to the federal remedy seems to ignore the typical dynamic of preemption. And as far as the arbitration analogy goes, the fact that the plans may or may not be able to voluntarily adopt such a remedy doesn't mean the state can compel it. Nothing prevented the plan in Egelhoff from voluntarily adopting the beneficiary designation rule at issue there. That didn't keep this Court from ruling that it was preempted. Nothing prevented the plan in Greater Washington Board of Trade from saying we're going to provide the same level of benefits to people on workers' comp uh, as, as to others, and yet a rule mandating that was preempted. We're dealing here with a compelled alternative state law remedy that changes completely the standard of review available under the federal remedy. It's not surprising the results under the two remedies came out differently. That additional remedy is preempted. Thank you, Your Honor. Thank you, Mr. Roberts. The case is submitted.